0: So we're back in Romans this evening after a short break. The last time we were in Romans, we were in verses 21 through 26. um, And we were rejoicing because we finally reached the good news section of Romans after the bad news over many, many weeks. And there was those glorious two words that opened verse 21. But now, Paul had been speaking about our condemnation before a just and righteous God. But now, he speaks of the wonderful reality that is our justification in Christ. Now, the reason I read verses 21 through 26, again, is so that we would just be reminded of this glorious reality that is justification. The dazzling doctrine of justification, that is. Christ lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. He kept the law perfectly so that all who would put their faith in him would receive his righteous record imputed to them. Whilst our sin goes to him and he paid the penalty and took the punishment. And the wonder of justification is that as God deals with our sin, he shows himself to be just and the justifier of those who would have faith in Christ we said last time this isn't just good news this is the best news ever well as we come to verse 27 through 31 Paul as a pastor wants to tease out the pastoral implications of believing in the doctrine of justification by faith alone because of grace alone to the glory of God alone Paul's concerned that all those who are hearing this glorious unpacking of the doctrine of justification, he knows that questions will arise in their mind. You see, one of the amazing things about the Paul was he was no ivory tower theologian. He was a pastor of real people with real problems and real concerns and he understood that his theology would have raised questions in their minds and hearts. Now, we just need to remind ourselves, Paul's writing to this congregation in a global city like ours here in London, Rome. It was at the epicenter of the Roman Empire at that time. It was a diverse congregation made up of Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles. And even for that reason, there would be different questions in the minds of the people in the congregation regarding the doctrine of Justification. And so what we have in verses 27 to 31, if you like, is a little question and answer session. Paul takes our questions and then he gives his answer. Now, as we live here in London, there are many of us who've got questions regarding the gospel. Many of us who might have friends, many of us who have colleagues and friends and neighbors who don't just have questions regarding the gospel, they've got objections regarding the gospel. And those objections come in various forms. But let me give you three. Number one objection is Christians think they're better than everyone else. Christians always come across as smug and arrogant, boastful, look down on others. Another, Another objection that people have, Christians are intolerant. Exclusive, narrow-minded. Another objection, Christians are all about saving souls, but in reality, they do not care about justice. They don't care about real people and real concerns. Now, I've framed those objections in contemporary terms, but in many ways, I'm taking them straight from the objections that the Apostle Paul was faced with here in verses 27 through 31. And so let's walk through and let's see Paul as he here? he takes these objections and then he answers them. So look at verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? In the church in Rome, there were those who had this question. What becomes of boasting in light of the doctrine of justification? You see, for for, for many people... When they thought of religious people, they thought of proud people. And that's hardly surprising because the Jews were the most proud people on the face of the earth because they knew that they were in special relationship, covenant relationship with God. And and, and you know, the most fascinating thing is boasting is just the verbalizing of pride. And religious communi- communities are the perfect incubators for pride. And when I use religious there, I mean in the widest sense of the term. People who who don't understand grace and the basis of their religion is works or keeping the law. If your religion is dependent on that, it is so easy for you to be filled with pride. And you know, the insipid thing about pride is it's like bad breath. You've got it. You don't know you have it. But everyone around you smells it. And the Jews were filled with pride. They were, we studied it in chapter 2. They were given God's law. They were the circumcised. They had the Torah. And so every time anyone ever heard theology, it's like, oh, here we go. Christians with their pride and their arrogance and their smugness. So here's the question. What of boasting? What of pride? Paul's answer Look at verse 27. It is excluded. Pride, in light of the doctrine of justification, no more. Because at the heart of the gospel, at the heart of the doctrine of justification, it's about nothing that we do but everything God has done in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is all of God, and it is all of grace. We contribute nothing. God does absolutely everything. And so we've got no reason to boast. You know, people who who their religion or their understanding of salvation is, I like keep the law, is so easy in that, in that understanding to be filled with pride. Because what you do is you compare yourself to other people. It's easy to be critical spirit. It's easy to be judgmental. And and religious people, the other thing is, it's easy to become proud because of your beliefs. Because I think my understanding is, is right. And Paul says, someone who gets the doctrine of justification understands there is no reason for boasting in oneself at all. Even the very faith that receives the gift that is salvation, they understand that is a gift from God. Remember Ephesians chapter 2? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So in Christianity, there's no place for boasting. So when we gather here tonight, right, one of the key things we need to understand is that this should not be a place where they're filled with proud people. No, 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 we all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. We of all people should be the humblest because we understand that by nature we deserve God's just punishment. But instead, He's lavished us with a love that we could not earn, we could not buy, and we did not deserve. Now, a good way just to illustrate this boasting is that passage we read from Philippians 3. Paul had every reason to boast before he came to Christ. Like, he had it all. I noticed that a lot of his was in his religiosity as a Jew, the tribe he came from, the way in which he kept the law, blameless, the sect he belonged to, he was a Pharisee. All of that gave him reason for boasting, but when he came to Christ he said, I count all rubbish. Rubbish. There's no reason whatsoever for boasting in oneself. The only thing he would boast in was Christ and him crucified. Paul is saying that boasting and believing in Christ are opposites. You can't have both. The principle of faith excludes boasting because faith understands that there is nothing we have done to justify ourselves. Now, this is really challenging if you, you, you work out this pastoral implications for your own life and for my own life. That means that we must give up a sense of our identity and everything that is not of Christ. It doesn't matter what family you're from. It doesn't matter what job you do. It doesn't matter your background. None of these things, in comparison to who you are in Christ, Matter. These are not your identity, nor should they be your security. Christ and Christ alone. And when Christ is your identity, when Christ is your security, that doesn't, that's not cause for pride, that's cause for humility, that He would love me. And He would love you. Now, this, this, the boasting in oneself is so subtle and and, and let me go for for us because we're Presbyterian, we're Reformed Christians, I've mentioned that in the past that's a cause for, for, for some of us to take pride in and boast about if you say you believe in the doctrines of grace and you're proud about it there's something deeply wrong if you say you're Reformed because you're comparing yourself to other Christians and you feel proud about it there's something deeply wrong It's cause for humility that God has opened up our eyes, illuminated our understanding by his Holy Spirit to show us how things in his word fit together. It's not cause for pride. We're having a chat on Friday night at the the 20s and 30s, and you know there's that question after a service finishes, the benediction said you sit down and someone might turn to you and say, what did you think of the sermon? In a church like ours, that question can be asked from two different places. It can be asked genuinely, what did you think of the sermon? What what was got to you? What did you learn? How did he speak into your life? Or it can be asked to find out what you believe to see if you're reformed. Paul says there is no boasting for those who understand the doctrine of justification. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of law. The second objection that Paul deals with is the the objection that the gospel is exclusive. Look at verse 29. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the, the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So the Jews were extremely conscious of the special relationship that they had with God. God chose to reveal himself to them. God chose to give them the law. God chose to choose them to be the channel and the means of his blessing for the world. The Jews had a strong faith that there is one God. Twice a day they would repeat the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is what set Israel apart. And the tragedy is, we read Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, you are to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And the tragedy is, instead of God's people being a light to the nations and drawing them in, they became proud and exclusive. Jews used to pray, I thank God that I'm not a Gentile. And in those ways, they, dis- they distorted God's glorious purposes that, that it was for the nations of the earth to come to know him and love him. Now, interestingly, the church in Rome, there were not just Jews, they were Gentiles. That is, they were people who were all different kinds of faiths, pagan religions. And in, in Gentile religion, you could have many gods, gods for sex, gods for power, gods for pleasure, gods, gods of all sorts. And they didn't come from a strict upbringing. They never had a, a liturgy of the day where you have to say the Lord our God is one. And so the question is, is the God the God of the Jews only? Is God exclusive only for his chosen people? Or is he also the God of the Gentiles? And here's the wonder and the genius of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Salvation, even from the beginning and right through the end, is not for one people. It's for all peoples. It has been the case from the very beginning. The Jews just distorted it. The Jews just failed to fulfill the mission that God had entrusted them. But we're... God put it on full display that he, the one God, is for all people, is in the cross. Because there the dividing wall of hostility came down. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 2? For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. For through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you, Gentiles, are fellow citizens, saints, and members of the household of God. The cross of Jesus paid not only for our sin, but it made the way clear to God for everybody and anybody. You no, know, even in the New Testament days, just before Christ had done the work on the cross, if you wanted to become one of God's people, you had to become a God-fearer. You had to go through the ceremonial laws. You had to keep the ceremonial laws. But when Christ came, that all came to an end. All people come to God the one way through, the one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, because of this one glorious gospel message. Notice what he says. One God for both circumcised and the uncircumcised. For the Jew and for the non-Jews, the Europeans, the Africans, the North Americans, the South Americans, the Asians, the Australians. In other words, Christianity is not exclusive. It is inclusive. God welcomes people of all different backgrounds and indeed all different lifestyles who are willing to repent and acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him. Now, loads of people in our culture think that we are exclusive. Loads of people who see churches, they think that's just a club for people who are religious fanatics. And I've got strong views on certain things. At least I'm talking about looking on at historic Orthodox Christian churches. But actually if people were to come in here, they, they, would, they would see something slightly different. We're all very different. Ethnically speaking, I, I don't know how many ethnicities are represented here this evening. Background, lifestyle speaking, we are all very, very different. Interests, hobbies, tastes of music, politics. All very, very different. But our diversity is this glorious picture of the fact of the Savior who outstretched arms welcomes anybody from whatever background, from whatever lifestyle, to come to him and to be forgiven. The unrighteous declared righteous because what he has done. You know, one of the amazing realities of the gospel is that it transcends every division. And and, and this is really important for us. See, in a church where we've got all lots of differences, do you know it's, it can be hard to get along? Like, musical taste is one thing, right? Some of you like country music. I like rap music. Some of you, politically speaking, are left, on the left. Some of you are on the right. Now, we could get into full-on debates if we wanted, but And and it could be hard and really disagree with him. But here's the incredible thing about Christ. Here's the genius of the gospel. The gospel transcends all of that and it makes us one. It saves us. You're closer to me than some of my own family members because you're a brother and sister in Christ. Bought by the precious blood and dwelt by the same spirit of God. And so we want to showcase this one God with this one gospel, this one Savior who welcomes all men, all women, all boys, all girls from all backgrounds. This is a taste of heaven. So that's the second objection. Let's go to the third and final objection. That is the gospel undermines justice. Look at verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, the people in the church here give this message, this doctrine of justification by faith alone, grace alone, and they think it through and they think, okay, if you say that you just believe and you trust in Christ, your sins are forgiven, well, and and, and it's got none to do with the law, well, surely that means we can just live as we please. We're saved. We've got his righteousness. Surely, Paul, your message of doctrine of justification by faith alone and grace alone is a message that enables us to live as antinomians. And Paul says, on the contrary, you don't understand the doctrine. Now, this, is, this is absolutely essential, right, to understanding the doctrine of justification. The law of God was not overthrown upheld in perfection. So here's the thing, right? Jesus Christ had to come and keep the law because there is not one human being who's ever walked this face of the earth who do that. It had to be the Son of God, the God-man. And he upheld the law Perfectly. But this is how serious God takes his law. The son of God had to be the one who took the penalty and the punishment because you and I broke the law. This is how serious God takes sin. He had to execute a perfect sacrifice. Law kept perfectly, punishment taken seriously in his son. God shows himself as just he just doesn't wipe our sin just doesn't hide our sins under the carpet he deals with our sin the penalty and the punishment is taken in his son so here's the question then what about upholding the law still for the believer well if you understand what Christ has done for us in the work of his life and death and resurrection and glorious ascension his finished work if you understand the only appropriate response is gratitude in light of the grace shown to us. And that is the fuel of obedience. Not that we don't keep the law, but we've got every reason to express our love for God by obeying his commandments. So, this question is, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Christ upheld it in our place. He took the punishment, so God showed that he takes the law seriously. And then secondly, because of what Christ's done, we've got every reason to keep the law. Now, so many of our contemporary neighbors think, you know, when I hear Christians speak, it sounds like they're only in the business of saving souls. It's all spiritual stuff, you know, going to heaven and souls and hell. But what about justice? What about caring for the poor? What about living like Jesus lived? He cared for the poor. He helped the sick. The heal- Where are Christians doing that? And in many ways, that might not be non-Christians asking that question That might be a younger gen of Christians asking that question of older generations of Christians. I see that you love orthodoxy. I see that you love the faith. But I don't really see you living out the faith. Well, here's the thing. When you understand what God has done for you in Christ, our mission is to go to people who are embodied. That is soul and body. We are to love our neighbor as we would love ourselves. We are to care, be interested in their concerns. And if we say we will love our neighbor as ourselves in obedience to Christ, that means that we will be concerned if we have neighbors who are oppressed, who are poor. We've got to understand that, 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 that living out God's law as he has laid it out means that we, as the people of God, a huge part of our mission is, yes, we proclaim the gospel for the salvation of men and women, boys and girls, but we live it out to embodied people, and so we we show the love of God in our actions. Now we got to understand something that's so important, right? Your Christian life, the main event in some ways, we could say Sunday, you know, when we gather to worship God corporately, but then that would create a sec- sacred secular divide. what 's the importance of what I do Monday through Saturday? Is that non-spiritual? No, 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 no. This is where your faith not only informs what we do here on a Sunday, but informs everything you do Monday through Saturday. Your work, your studies, you do informed as a person of faith. And so whatever you're studying, whatever you're learning, whatever you're working at, it is for the good and the flourishing of our Context, or of our country of our society and that's so important to understand because god is concerned not just about us living little lives where we only talk about the spiritual but he's concerned that we live out our faith in this material world and that our faith makes a difference so i gotta ask you the question does your faith inform your work does your faith inform your lifestyle do you care about justice Do you care about the poor, the oppressed, the least, the last, the lost? Because a faith that understands grace responds with gratitude and obeys and takes God's call very seriously. And the beauty of all of this is that it ends here. The gospel is such good news that it first humbles sinners and excludes boasting. It unites believers, and it excludes discrimination. It upholds the law, and it excludes antinomianism. No boasting, no discrimination, no antinomianism. The genius of the gospel of grace by faith alone and Christ alone to the glory of God alone is that he gets all the glory, and we're invited to live out his good and glorious will in the here and now until he comes. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the good news of the gospel. We thank you so much that you have suited the gospel to all of our cases and all of our backgrounds and all of us as people. There is not one person who is excluded. we pray that This passage which tries to work out the implicate, which works out the implications and we've been trying to think through this evening that we would work out the implications of the doctrine of justification for our life. Lord, may we be a people marked by humility because we understand that we have contributed nothing but our sin to our salvation. May we be a people who showcase the diversity as we have our arms wide open to welcoming strangers, and showing them love and grace. And may we be a people who uphold your law as we live in response, grateful response, to what your Son has done. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.